We now have available for you 10 different audio descriptions of 10 presidential portraits on display at the Smithsonian Institution's National Portrait Gallery in their exhibition, America's Presidents. The exhibition there is the nation's only complete collection of presidential portraits outside the White House. And the exhibition lies at the heart of the Portrait Gallery's mission to tell the American story through the individuals who have shaped it. Each uh, description is between five and eight minutes long for a total of about an hour. You'll hear descriptions of the Portrait Gallery's portraits of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, two of Thomas Jefferson, actually, Abraham Lincoln, Theodore Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, John F. Kennedy, Richard M. Nixon, Jimmy Carter, and William Clinton. This description is just over five minutes long. George Washington by Gilbert Stuart, 1796. Oil on canvas, approximately eight feet high by six feet four inches wide. In this large-scale, over-life-size portrait, George Washington stands in an ornate room, positioned just to the right of center and posed at a slight angle. He sets his feet squarely apart. The president does not face us directly, but rather turns to our left, with that arm outstretched, as if gesturing during a speech. In the other hand, toward the right side of the canvas, he holds a ceremonial sword, and his index finger extends down along the blade. The president's expression is authoritative. His mouth is set in a firm line, and his eyes are fixed, as if he is holding the gaze of an audience. A warm pink flush spreads across his clean-shaven cheeks. His hair is pulled back away from his forehead. Curled at the sides, it covers his ears and blends into his thick sideburns. The ribbon fastening his hair is visible behind his left shoulder. Washington wears a black velvet coat that just touches his knees. His breeches, waistcoat, and stockings, which are mostly in shadow, are also black, as are his shoes with their large silver buckles. White ruffled linen at his neck and lace ruffles at his wrists contrast with his solemn clothing and draw attention to his face and hands. The richly furnished setting is formal. Behind Washington and to our right is a sumptuous chair. Made of carved gold-painted wood, it is upholstered in burgundy velvet. At the center of its round seatback is a small shield. It resembles an oval-shaped American flag with red and white stripes and white stars on a blue background. A table fills the bottom left quadrant of the canvas and its corner points towards us. Part of the table's cream-colored marble top is draped in the same burgundy velvet as the chair. This drapery is partially lifted to reveal the table's gold leg. Carved to resemble a Roman fasces, a bundle of rods that symbolizes strength in unity, it is topped by a double eagle motif. Underneath the table are several large books. Two of them lean upright against the leg, revealing the titles on their spines. One reads, American Revolution, and the other, Constitution and Laws of the United States. On the table, there are some smaller volumes, as well as a white feather quill perched in a silver inkwell, some folded sheets of paper, and at the back, Washington's black-plumed cap. In the background, gold tassels draw back a wine-red velvet curtain to reveal two sets of monumental classical columns. Behind the columns and the curtain, a blue sky appears, and at the top right, there is a rainbow. 
The portrait label reads as follows: George Washington, 1732-1799, Lansdowne Portrait, First President, 1789-1797. As a military and political figure, George Washington was a unifying force during the country's formative years. He fought in the French and Indian War and later served as commander in chief of the Continental Army in the Revolutionary War. After being unanimously elected as the first president of the United States in 1789, he installed the Supreme Court and the cabinet, quelled the Whiskey Rebellion, and defeated the Western Lakes Confederacy in the Northwest Indian War, and facilitated the subsequent peace negotiations with the alliance. Washington enjoyed immense popularity at the end of his second term, but he declined to run again. Insisting that the United States needed to take proper precautions to avoid hereditary leadership or dictatorship, while mapping out the composition for this painting, American artist Gilbert Stuart, who had previously worked in England and Ireland, drew from European traditions of state portraiture to evoke Washington's leadership. The artist made a number of direct references to the newly formed United States, and the pose he chose for the president. Is believed to allude to Washington's annual address in front of Congress in December 1795. Stuart completed several replicas of the image, which spread rapidly through popular engravings. Gilbert Stuart, 1755 to 1828, oil on canvas, 1796, acquired as a gift to the nation through the generosity of the Donald W. Reynolds Foundation. NPG.2001. Dot one three. This description is just over four minutes long and is followed by a reading of the exhibition label Thomas Jefferson by Gilbert Stuart, begun around 1805 and completed by 1821. Oil on wood, approximately 26 inches high by 21 inches wide. In this mid-size bust-length portrait, Thomas Jefferson is angled slightly to our left, but turns his head halfway to look at us. When we first encounter the portrait from several feet away, the president's high-collared black jacket, the creamy white cravat at his neck, and the light falling upon his forehead stand out against the dusty sage background. The palette is limited, with black, white, gray-green, and brown as the predominant colors. Compared to some of the highly finished works in this exhibition, such as the nearby Lansdowne portrait of George Washington. Which is also by Gilbert Stuart. This painting has an unfinished, sketch-like quality. When we move nearer to the painting, Stuart's process and technique take center stage. He painted the background in vertical strokes of glistening, semi-opaque gray-green paint that rest atop the natural crevices of the mahogany panel. Stuart blocked in Jefferson's head in a darker tone, then adjusted it. Leaving evidence of his process in the form of a shadow along the top and left side of the forehead, the artist then painted Jefferson's face and hair on top of the soft gray background, allowing some of it to show through to suggest a sense of shape and depth. Since the gray permeates the image and there are no sharp outlines, it seems as if the sitter is emerging from fog. A semi-transparent mahogany brown line defines the contours of Jefferson's trademark hairstyle. With its center part and the curled gray locks falling over his forehead and halfway over his ears, the right side of his face, which is in shadow, 
is rendered in a rich chestnut brown, as are the deep grooves beneath his brow bones. With his closed mouth and heavily lidded eyes peering out from the shadows, Jefferson's expression is neutral, if not reserved. Stuart therefore used light, texture, and color to tell us more about the sitter. He paid special attention to Jefferson's brightly lit forehead, using denser paint and narrower strokes here than on the rest of the face. A pale peach zigzag articulates the right temple. From a distance, the president's skin has a dull tan quality, but up close the vibrancy of the color is striking. Shades of coral infuse the president's cheeks with a sense of vitality, while the exposed gray underpainting describes the circles underneath his eyes, the musculature around his mouth and set jaw, and the structure of his aquiline nose. The pure ebony of Jefferson's pupils draws our attention back to his direct gaze, where tiny pinpricks of pure white paint indicate reflected light. The opaque black of the president's coat obscures the texture of the mahogany panel. It seems to lie atop the surface of the painting like a flat silhouette. Stewart went back over most of the edges with black liquid paint to create a smooth outline, but in the process made tiny splatters against the muted gray background. Overall, the artist strikes a balance between simplicity and detail, flatness and depth, and control and spontaneity. The exhibition label reads as follows. Third President, 1801-1809. Thomas Jefferson authored the Declaration of Independence, founded the University of Virginia, and wrote Virginia's Statute for Religious Freedom. He was also a philosopher, inventor, gentleman farmer, and scientist. During his presidency, the nation bought a vast landholding west of the Mississippi River. Known as the Louisiana Purchase, this acquisition from France doubled the size of the United States and led to the remarkable findings of the Lewis and Clark Expedition, 1804-1806. Although Jefferson once called slavery an abominable crime, he consistently enslaved African Americans, including his late wife Martha's half-sister, Sally Hemings, with whom he had several children. Known as the Edgehill Portrait, this painting on mahogany by artist Gilbert Stuart was the result of two sittings. Jefferson's brightly lit forehead stands out against the muted gray-green background, as if to emphasize his bold intellect. Gilbert Stuart, 1755-1828 Oil on Wood Panel, 1805-1821 Owned jointly with Monticello, Thomas Jefferson Foundation Incorporated, Charlottesville, Virginia. Purchase funds provided by the Regents of the Smithsonian Institution, the Trustees of the Thomas Jefferson Foundation Incorporated, and the Enid and Crosby Kemper Foundation. NPG 8297. This description is almost six minutes long. Thomas Jefferson by Mather Brown, 1786. Oil on Canvas approximately three feet high by just over two feet wide. Mather Brown shows the third president from the waist up, seated at a table. He is handsomely dressed and grasps a large sheet of paper that lies on a table at the bottom right. Behind him to the right, a classical statue of a woman stands with her back to us. In the background, the folds of a burgundy drape create a strong diagonal at the top left, 
and a deep shadow behind the president. A bright light streams in from the left, illuminating Jefferson's light gray powdered hair and fair complexion, which makes him stand out dramatically against the dark curtain. Jefferson turns his head to the right, but his torso faces us. His elaborate curled and powdered hair is brushed back at the forehead, curled at the sides, and tied at the back. The president looks to the right, as if lost in thought. Flecked with light, his large, deep-set hazel eyes are framed by light brown eyebrows. White highlights accent the bridge and tip of his prominent aquiline nose. Below it, his mouth is closed. Jefferson is dressed in the manner of a stylish 18th-century gentleman. His jacket, which is mostly in shadow, is a deep peacock blue. At the point where the light hits the shoulder on the left, it appears almost white, suggesting soft velvet. Underneath the jacket, he wears a cream and gold striped waistcoat. Thick, unblended strokes of off-white indicate folds and convey the sheen of fine silk. A gauzy white fabric is wrapped around his neck and tied in a bow. Below it, an elaborate jabot, or ruffle, hangs from the top of his waistcoat, reaching almost halfway down his chest. Made of a stiff, crimped sheer white material, it seems to extend out from his body and into our space. On the left side of the painting, Jefferson's arm is at his side and in shadow. He rests his other arm on a dark wood tabletop on the bottom right of the painting, and the ruffled edge of his sleeve emerges at his wrist. On the table is a long sheet of paper that has been folded over, partially obscuring the gray lines that indicate text. Its edges curl slightly, as if it were an unrolled scroll. Jefferson pulls the top of the sheet towards his middle, so that it almost blends in with his waistcoat. On the bottom of the sheet, the artist has signed and dated the painting, M. Brown, 1786. In the background, the artist's brushstrokes are looser, especially where the light falls on the scarlet drapery behind Jefferson's shoulders. On the right, just over the president's left shoulder, the statue of the woman stands with her body facing away from the viewer. Painted in warm gray tones, the left side of her body is in the light, while the rest is enveloped in shadow. She is wearing long robes and a flowing sash. Ringlets of hair spill from beneath her headband as she turns her head back toward Jefferson, as if to whisper in his ear. Her brow is furrowed and her lips pursed as she extends her index finger in a gesture that is almost lost in the dark. A pole topped with a liberty cap extends above her far shoulder to the uppermost right corner of the painting. The portrait label reads as follows, Thomas Jefferson, 1743 to 1826, third president, 1801 to 1809, a scientist, an enlightenment philosopher, and one of the most accomplished and complicated personalities in American history. Thomas Jefferson authored the Declaration of Independence and served his country as statesman, diplomat, and president. In 1803, during his first term as president, he orchestrated the Louisiana Purchase, which doubled the size of the United States and established the nation as a continental power. This expansion, more than any other, forced politicians to confront the growing slave economy, and Jefferson, who, like many of the early American presidents, held slaves, wrestled with the rift between his philosophical beliefs and the country's dependence on slavery. John Adams, who served as the American minister to England when Jefferson served as the American minister to France, 
hosted his friend in the spring of 1786, when both of them were more than a decade away from becoming president. During the visit, Adams suggested that Jefferson posed for the Boston-born artist Mather Brown, who created this portrait, the earliest known likeness of Jefferson. Mather Brown, 1761 to 1831, Oil on Canvas, 1786, Bequest of Charles Francis Adams, Frame conserved with funds from the Smithsonian Women's Committee, NPG.99.66. This description is just over four minutes long. Abraham Lincoln by Alexander Gardner, 1865. Albumin silver print, approximately 17 inches wide by 15 inches high. This medium-sized bust-length photograph of Lincoln has an unusual feature, a diagonal line resulting from a crack in the original glass negative bisects the composition. It begins in the upper left corner of the image and descends at a 45-degree angle before turning sharply to the right to cut across the top of Lincoln's head just above the hairline. His calm face at the very center of the composition remains unscathed and in sharp focus. By contrast, the outline of his head and shoulders is blurred. The dark brown of the 16th president's clothing, hair, and shadowed face sets him apart from the plain background of warm tan. Since the tonal range is limited, the contrast between the crisp detail in the face and the hazy contours of the head and shoulders creates a sense of depth, making it seem as if Lincoln is emerging from a fog. Lincoln faces our left. He is positioned at an angle with the shoulder that fills the bottom right of the composition nearest to us. As he looks into the distance, dark, heavy eyebrows blend into the deep sockets of his eyes, which also have noticeable shadows below them. A pinpoint of light animates the eye on our right, while the left eye is cast in shadow. His cheeks are sloped and sunken. Two deep grooves travel down from the sides of his nose to the edges of his mouth, and another crease extends up from his chin to his cheek. A slight smile plays over his full lips. The president's prominent chin is covered by a bushy beard that is flecked with pale whiskers. His hair is combed at an upward angle to our left, revealing his broad and high forehead and a receding hairline above the right temple. Further to the right, part of his head and large ear are out of focus. The details of Lincoln's clothing are also indistinct. He wears a dark jacket with wide lapels over a matching vest. We can just make out a buttonhole on the right lapel. His white shirt bunches up from underneath the vest. A lopsided bow tie in plain dark fabric sits below his starched collar. The portrait label reads as follows. Abraham Lincoln, 1809-1865, born Hardin County, Kentucky. In February of 1865, just two months before Abraham Lincoln's assassination, Alexander Gardner created this cracked plate portrait, now considered one of the most important and evocative photographs in American history. The deep lines in Lincoln's face evoke his weariness at the end of the Civil War, but he also exhibits a slight smile, perhaps a sign of relief as the restoration of the Union drew near. Lincoln had looked forward to continuing his presidency, but was assassinated only weeks after beginning his second term. At some point, possibly when the glass plate negative was heated to receive a coat of varnish, a crack appeared in the upper half of Gardner's plate. He made a single print, 
and then discarded the damaged plate, so only one such portrait exists. Alexander Gardner, 1821-1882 Internal dye diffusion print copied from the original 1865 albumin silver print, printed 1981, courtesy of the Polaroid Corporation, npg.81.m1.d3 This modern copy is being shown to protect the original from further exposure to light. This description is just over five minutes long. Theodore Roosevelt by Adrian Lamb, 1967. Copy after the original of 1908 by Philip Alexius de Laszlo. Oil on canvas, 4 feet 3 inches tall by 3 feet 3 inches wide. This impressive life-size portrait of the 26th president has a thick gilded frame. Roosevelt sits at an angle against a dark background. His body and legs point to our right, but he turns his head to look the viewer straight in the eye. The overall composition forms a pyramid with his head at the top. His legs, which are cropped below the knees and spread wide, form the base. Roosevelt's face is the focal point of the painting. While the rest of his body is in shadow, covered in many layers of dark clothing, his head and the hand on our left are boldly lit, as if by a spotlight. The brushstrokes are also thicker in these areas. Unblended, they follow the contours of his head and hand animating this otherwise still figure. The president wears a pince-nez, or a pair of frameless glasses without arms, that draws further attention to his piercing bright blue eyes. The thin cord attached to his eyewear falls down over the left side of his face, and a neat curl of dark hair sits upon his wide forehead. Roosevelt furrows his brow in a slight frown, the skin noticeably tenser at the bridge of his somewhat bulbous nose. His closed mouth points downwards at the edges and is topped by a bushy gray mustache. Posed to show off his riding gear, Roosevelt rests his lower arms on his thighs. He balls the hand on our right into a fist at his knee. In the other hand, which sits further up on his thigh, he holds a riding crop and a pair of cream riding gloves. The crop stretches across his lap. Its ornate handle reaches toward the bottom left corner of the canvas while its leather tongue falls over his opposite hand. A dark forest green riding cloak is draped over his shoulders and surrounds his body. It has been thrown open to reveal the deep purplish-black silken lining. Underneath, he wears a heavy wool jacket in the same green. It sits unbuttoned above a black waistcoat, which is fastened by a single small golden buckle in the middle. The collar of his white shirt is visible, and he wears a dark blue necktie knotted at his throat. Likewise, the white cuffs of his sleeves emerge at the wrists of the green jacket. His dark brown trousers are tucked into heavy riding boots, and their thick flaps fold over his knees. At the bottom left of the canvas, part of the plain brown wooden frame of his chair is visible. Roosevelt's riding cloak is draped over the back leg of his chair, creating a strong diagonal line to his shoulder which then draws our attention back to his stern expression. The portrait label reads as follows. Theodore Roosevelt, 1858-1919, 26th President, 1901-1909, an outsized personality who preached the benefits of the strenuous life while also being among the most learned of presidents, Theodore Roosevelt gained national prominence as a civil service reformer, a hero of the Spanish-American War, and a proactive governor of New York. 
After William McKinley was assassinated in 1901, Roosevelt took office and initiated one of American history's most reform-oriented presidencies. His contributions would include implementing efforts to conserve the nation's disappearing national heritage, instituting some of the first significant curbs on the excesses of big business, and building the Panama Canal. Despite having progressive views on labor and consumer issues, Roosevelt maintained conservative views on a number of social issues. For example, he felt convinced that a declining birth rate among old-stock Americans threatened the nation as a whole, and therefore opposed immigration, birth control, and the redefinition of women's roles. Roosevelt was a fascinating bundle of contradictions, above all as a patrician who realized that, unless essential reforms were initiated by government, American democracy was likely to fail. Adrian Lamb, 1901-1988, after Philip Alexius de Laszlo, 1869-1937. Oil on Canvas, 1967, after 1908 original. Gift of the Theodore Roosevelt Association, NPG.68.28. This description is just over seven minutes long. Franklin D. Roosevelt by Douglas Chander, 1945, Oil on Canvas, approximately four and a half feet high by four feet wide. This complex composition has three distinct components, all set against a tan background that resembles unpainted, unprimed canvas. The first, taking up most of the top half of the canvas, is a bust-length portrait of Franklin D. Roosevelt wearing a dark gray cape over a suit. Below him, a series of hands in different poses are arranged along a diagonal from the bottom left to the right edge of the composition, ending just below Roosevelt's portrait. In the bottom left quadrant of the canvas, there is also a study for a group portrait of Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, and Joseph Stalin. Above this vignette are several lines of text. The gray and black capital letters read, Study of President Roosevelt for Painting Big Three at Yalta. Canvas size 92 inches by 92 inches with outline sketch. Let's begin with the portrait of Roosevelt in the center of the canvas. We see the president's head, shoulders, and chest against a cloud of maroon paint that darkens to rich mahogany brown behind his shoulders. Although FDR faces us with his head tilted slightly to the left, he looks off into the distance toward the right. His forehead is lined and his silver hair is white at the temples. Roosevelt's steely gray eyes are offset by charcoal eyebrows. Worry lines extend from the corners of his eyes and along the sides of his cheeks to frame his thin closed lips. The president folds his forearms on the undefined table before him, with one hand resting atop the other. A smoking cigarette in a gold holder is perched between the index and middle finger of the hand on our right. Its ember burns a bright reddish orange. On the little finger of that hand, he wears a signet ring with a green jewel set in gold. The hand resting underneath is closed, apart from the index finger, which is extended. A thick cord holds Roosevelt's cape together over his suit. Decorative knots adorn each end of the closure, while crisscross strokes in dark gray convey the thick weave of the fabric. The wide collar of the cloak is made of a soft, inky black material that catches the light like velvet or fur. Roosevelt's cape opens at the elbows to reveal its smooth lining. Underneath, 
The president wears a gray suit jacket and a white dress shirt. His emerald tie matches the green stone of his ring. Below this portrait, covering the bottom half of the canvas, are studies of Roosevelt's hands. They are shown individually and in pairs. At the bottom left, one hand writes on the canvas with a red pencil. Two sets of initials already appear above the red stroke it seems to be making. To the right, and overlapping the sketch for the group portrait, a pair of hands holds that same red pencil, with the signet ring on the little finger on the right. Moving up along a diagonal toward the middle, we see two more hands. The one on the left rests on the table, while the one on the right holds a pince-nez, a pair of glasses without arms, and flashes the ring. At the right edge of the canvas is another version of that same hand, which extends backwards, as if to flick the ashes from the cigarette between its thumb and forefingers. Below this group, in the bottom right corner, there is another pair of folded hands, the red pencil appearing again between the index and middle finger of the top hand, and the ring on the bottom one. Now we come to the final section, the small sketch for the full group portrait in the bottom left of the composition. This scene is painted in grisaille, or in shades of gray, which makes it look more like a drawing. Framed by an arch and columns, Roosevelt is seated at a table in the same pose as in the top half of this painting. Two other men sit with the president, flanking him on either side. To our left, Winston Churchill is seated in his military uniform. Although his body faces us, he turns his head to look at Joseph Stalin, who holds a pipe in one hand as he points to a large, unfolded piece of paper on the table. Another uniformed man stands behind the group, leaning in between Roosevelt and Stalin. Two other men stand further in the distance behind Churchill. Beyond the arch in the background, there are trees, buildings, and a mountain. At the bottom left of the canvas, the artist has written out the date and location of the sitting in black capital letters. Chandor, March 1945, The White House, Washington. The portrait label reads as follows. Franklin D. Roosevelt, 1882-1945, 32nd President, 1933-1945. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, whose presidency began in the throes of the Great Depression, led the United States out of its devastating financial crisis. During his first few months in office, he established the New Deal, a set of ambitious government programs that supported public works projects, put forth banking and business regulations, and offered other forms of federal relief. In 1940, before the United States entered World War II, he decided to seek a third term, pointing out that one should never change horses in midstream. In the diplomatic summits with Britain's Winston Churchill and the Soviet Union's Joseph Stalin, Roosevelt not only prosecuted the war, but helped lay the groundwork for the post-war world. In March 1945, Douglas Chandor spent several days at the White House, where he made sketches for a group portrait of Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin to mark their conference the previous month at Yalta, a resort on the Black Sea. The artist wished the painting to be a conversation about peace, but it was never realized because Stalin refused to sit for the portrait. Chandor included the composition for the painting on this canvas, along with studies of Roosevelt's hands. Douglas Chandor, 1897-1953, Oil on Canvas, 1945, 
NPG.68.49. This description is just under five minutes long. John F. Kennedy by Elaine de Kooning, 1963. Oil on canvas, approximately eight feet six inches high by three feet eight inches wide. This tall vertical portrait of John F. Kennedy stands out among the other likenesses in the America's Presidents exhibition. Its vibrant colors grab the viewer's attention. Emerald, lime, and jade greens abound in the lower part of the composition, while splashes of sky blue and rich gold accented with magenta and violet fill the top. From up close, the seated figure of the 35th president is almost lost in a network of loosely applied brush strokes. Splatters and thick nubs of paint punctuate the surface. At first, it may appear as if Elaine de Kooning painted this portrayal quickly and without much planning. But if we move farther away, it becomes clear that she has applied strokes of carefully chosen contrasting colors to define Kennedy's form, so that he emerges from this cacophony of expressionist brushstrokes. At over eight feet tall, the portrait is the size of a high, narrow doorway. Kennedy, who wears a white shirt with a skinny tie and dark pants, fills the canvas. Since he is sitting down, this means that he is well over life size. As we look up at his face, this monumental figure's gaze is particularly arresting because de Kooning has rendered the eyes in more detail than the rest of the painting. They are light blue with a hint of magenta, but from our vantage point several feet below, the hues mix to appear violet. Echoing the downward sweep of his eyes, a thick green stroke defines Kennedy's hairline, whereas the rest of his hair is painted in gold and brown. The president's cheeks and square jaw are defined in tans, pinks, and greens, but his nose appears flattened and indistinct. Perched on the edge of his chair, Kennedy angles his crossed legs to the right as he faces us directly. At the left, the top half of his arm is slightly cropped by the side of the canvas, and he rests that hand on his thigh. To support his twisting pose, he has extended his other arm, with the elbow pointed outwards and his forearm directed down to grip the arm of the chair. It appears as if he has just turned toward us. De Kooning has filled in the rectangular space between his arm and torso with a deep dark green. It suggests the back of the chair, but also contrasts with his white shirt and draws our attention to the sitter's unnatural pose. By contrast, below the knees, his legs dissolve into a flurry of black, white, lavender, and dark green brush strokes that hint at his dark socks and shoes. The bottom left and right corners of the canvas remain unpainted, apart from the artist's abbreviated signature, which reads E.D.K. in gray. The portrait label reads as follows, John F. Kennedy, 1917-1963. 35th President, 1961-1963. When John F. Kennedy was assassinated in 1963, the country experienced a collective sense of grief that it had not known since the death of Abraham Lincoln. Many Americans found it hard to cope with the sudden loss of this youthful, energetic president whose speeches had inspired citizens to achieve high ideals. In his shortened tenure as president, Kennedy proposed landmark civil rights legislation, created the Peace Corps, and promoted the goal of landing on the moon. In foreign policy, his administration peacefully resolved a dramatic standoff with the Soviet Union over the presence of missiles in Cuba, and he oversaw the buildup of the American presence in Vietnam. 
Elaine de Kooning, known for her gestural portraits, held several informal sessions with him in Palm Beach, Florida, in December 1962 and January 1963. The artist was so moved by the president during these sittings that she went on to create dozens of drawings and paintings of him over the next ten months. Elaine de Kooning, 1918-1989 Oil on Canvas, 1963 NPG.99.75 This description is just under five minutes long. Richard Nixon by Norman Rockwell, 1968 Oil on Canvas, approximately 18 inches tall by 26 inches wide. Norman Rockwell painted this small bust-length portrait in 1968, the year Richard Nixon won the presidential election. Shown from the chest up, with his head and shoulders almost filling the right half of the canvas, he is seated against a dark walnut background that fades to ashen brown toward the right. He stretches his arm over the upper portion of a maroon upholstered chair that fills the bottom left corner of the composition. Nixon leans forward and meets our gaze directly, which, coupled with the close vantage point, creates a sense of intimacy. It is as if the newly elected president has just turned around in his armchair to face us, while the hand on the left rests lightly on the textured upholstery, which is flecked with small dots of apple red. He balls the hand on the right into a fist and supports his chin on the outstretched thumb and forefinger. A direct light source illuminates his head and fist. Together they form a strong vertical element on the right side of this otherwise dark, elongated, horizontal composition. Nixon tilts his head slightly to our right. He is so close to us that we can discern almost every detail of his expression, every wrinkle on his brow. Although his lips are closed, they turn up slightly at the edges. Smile lines etch his cheeks and ring his mouth. Above the bridge of his prominent nose, his thick, dark eyebrows are slightly furrowed. They frame his bright eyes, and a shining glimmer of white at the center of each one reflects the light. His dark hair, which is gray at the temples, is combed back from his forehead. The hair at the center of his low, rounded widow's peak is thinning. Nixon wears a dark suit jacket that covers up most of his pristine white dress shirt and tie, which has diagonal navy, green, and turquoise stripes. With the outward and forward extension of his arms, the shoulder pads of his black blazer bunch up, forming creases in the material at the top of both his arms. Crisp white shirt cuffs peek out from the edges of his sleeves. On the left cuff, there is the pearlescent gleam of a small button or cufflink. The cuff on the right recedes to reveal the very edge of a gold watch face and its brown leather band. At the lower right, bold red block letters that spell out Norman Rockwell stand out against Nixon's dark blazer. The portrait label reads as follows, Richard M. Nixon, 1913-1994, 37th President, 1969-1974. Coming of political age during the Cold War, Richard Nixon used national security issues to gain prominence in Congress and later served as Eisenhower's vice president. After he lost both the election for the presidency in 1960 and the race for California governor in 1962, it seemed as though his career may have peaked in the 1950s. However, as the Democratic Party unraveled over such topics as the Vietnam War and civil rights, 
Nixon won the presidency in 1968. During his tenure, which was cut short, he focused on foreign policy, particularly with regard to ending the Vietnam War and establishing a relationship with China. The scandal over the Watergate break-in and the subsequent cover-up morphed into a crisis over presidential misconduct, and in 1974, he became the first, and so far the only, president to resign. In 1968, Look Magazine hired Norman Rockwell to portray the newly elected president. Admitting that Nixon's appearance was troublesomely elusive, Rockwell chose to intentionally flatter him. If he was going to err in his portrayal, he wanted it to be in the direction that would please his subject. Norman Rockwell, 1894-1978 Oil on Canvas, 1968 Donated to the people of the United States of America by the Richard Nixon Foundation. NPG.72.2 This description is just under five and a half minutes long. Jimmy Carter by Robert Templeton, 1980 Oil on Canvas, 7 feet 9 inches high by 4 feet 9 inches wide. This is a life-size portrait of Jimmy Carter standing in the Oval Office. Wearing a pewter gray suit, the 39th president poses with one hand on the ornately carved dark brown wooden desk on the left side of the composition and the other hand in the pocket of his trousers. Behind him are the elegant trappings of this famous room, including portrait busts and furniture in shades of cream, blue, and brown. Paintings adorn the ivory-colored wall in the background. At the top of the canvas, the sweeping curve of the decorative crown molding creates a sense of the room's generous height and depth. Overall, the tone is relatively soft and even. Although his body is angled slightly toward the desk at the left, the president turns his face directly toward us. His gray-blonde hair is parted to the right, and his brow is slightly furrowed. Carter's gray suit is immaculately pressed, but the lower button of the jacket remains unfastened. Underneath his jacket, Carter wears a white button-down shirt with a blue and gray diagonally striped tie. A pair of shiny brown leather oxfords completes the ensemble. Carter stands in silent conversation with the objects in the Oval Office. Among the supplies on his desk, which include notepads and a tape recorder, is a glass figurine of a donkey kicking back its hind legs. Behind the president is the seating area. The sandy yellow carpet is decorated with a pattern of blue flowers with white and yellow centers. Laid out in diagonal rows, the flowers draw our attention to the two sofas beyond Carter's desk. Arranged with their backs to one another, one faces us while the other is oriented toward a mantle on the back wall. The sofas are covered in light blue, gold, cream, and reddish-brown vertical stripes. Rising between them is a small figurine of Lincoln. Next to the sofas on the right, there is a Chippendale chair upholstered in pale pink. The chair is cropped at the right edge of the canvas. The mantle on the back wall is decorated with ivy and a tall vase with a red, white, and blue pattern. A portrait of George Washington in a gold military uniform hangs above it. It has an elaborate gilded frame, as do the two smaller paintings that hang behind Carter, flanking his shoulders. On the left is a bust-length portrait of Benjamin Franklin, and on the right, a landscape with a blue sky, most of which is hidden behind the president. A rectangular niche with four shelves is set within the wall on the left side of the canvas. The bottom three shelves hold books, 
while the top is reserved for three blue and white plates. A decorative inset in the shape of a shell crowns the top of the niche. Below the niche is a small side table with chairs on either side. A bronze bust of President Harry S. Truman rests upon it. The portrait label reads as follows Jimmy Carter, born 1924, 39th President, 1977 to 1981. When Americans elected Jimmy Carter in 1976, they were voting for a positive change in executive leadership, burdened by escalating costs of living. And tired of recent scandal ridden politics, they saw Carter as a fresh new face who would make, in his words, government as good as the American people. A born again Christian, Carter touted his human decency to heal the divisions of post Vietnam American society, while also promising to fix the economy. Stemming high inflation, however, proved to be harder than he had predicted. He also could not do much to ease the ongoing energy crisis instigated by the cartel of oil producing nations. In 1978, Carter successfully brokered a landmark peace accord between Egypt and Israel, but the Iranian hostage crisis of 1979, spurred by the U.S. support of the unpopular Shah of Iran, crippled the last year of his administration. He lost a re election bid to Ronald Reagan in 1980. In this portrait by Robert Templeton, Carter is shown standing in the Oval Office, as it was during his tenure. The donkey statuette on his desk was a gift from the Democratic National Committee. Robert Templeton, 1929 to 1991. Oil on Canvas, 1980. Partial gift of the 1977 Inauguration Committee. NPG.84.154. Description is just over six minutes long. Bill Clinton by Chuck Close. Oil on canvas, nine feet tall by seven feet wide. In this large scale portrait of Bill Clinton, two things stand out. The first is its size, given that the artist only shows Clinton's head and shoulders. This means that his face alone is several feet high. Making it about the same size as some of the full length, life size portraits in the America's Presidents exhibition. Second, while the work is based on a photograph, it is far more abstract than a typical headshot. Similar to pixels on a screen, the painting is composed of hundreds of color filled diamonds. As a result, this portrait of the 42nd president remains a puzzle like abstraction, even though it alludes to a realistic photograph. Let's explore the mosaic like composition. When we are near the portrait, Clinton's likeness takes a back seat to Close's technique. Close made a grid on both the original photograph and the canvas. He then used the grid as a guideline to enlarge the photograph, transferring and transforming the visual information from each segment to the canvas. Since diagonal lines form the grid instead of horizontals and verticals, the painting is made up of diamonds instead of squares. While each diamond is roughly two and a half by two and a half inches, some of them are joined together to form larger rectangles and L shapes. Close then filled these geometric fields with a series of loosely painted, multicolored concentric circles, teardrops, or rectangles. They resemble nesting blocks of different colors and shapes. At the center of the composition, Close used unexpectedly bright hues to form the oval of Clinton's face and hair. On the left side of the canvas, where the light hits the president's face, the diamond tiles are filled with pale aqua 
peach, and sage green. The midtones of his full cheeks and rounded chin are made up of tangerine, yellow ochre, olive green, eggplant, violet, and even crimson. Along his bulbous nose and underneath his chin, evergreen, eggplant, and burnt sienna represent darker shadows. Within this warm palette, the blue of the irises of Clinton's eyes stands out. Rings of turquoise, green, and aqua surround the black circles of his pupils. Each iris fills one of the diamonds. In this way, the eyes form the basic unit of composition and scale. Now that we have examined the technique, let's move back several feet. From our new vantage point, it becomes apparent that the variations in the grid suggest specific facial features. For example, there is a pale yellow and baby blue shape resembling a kidney bean about a third of the way up the center of the composition. From afar, it coalesces into the president's sparkling white front teeth, which he reveals through parted, smiling lips. Furthermore, colors that appear bright and bold up close seem more subdued at a distance. The background of peacock blue, evergreen, raspberry, and greenish gold becomes a dark blue-gray that complements Clinton's warm tan complexion. Even from the far end of the spacious gallery, which is several yards back, the painting does not read as a crisp image. Instead, it is almost as if we are viewing Clinton through textured glass. The portrait label reads as follows. William J. Clinton, born 1946, 42nd President, 1993-2001. to 2001. The first baby boomer president, Bill Clinton came to national attention when, at age 32, he emerged as one of the leading reform governors of the Democratic Party. During his presidency, he and his administration played a crucial part in curbing the massive federal spending deficits that had soared in the 1980s, even achieving a surplus in revenues for the first time since the 1960s. Clinton established new organizations for free trade, including NAFTA, which eliminated tariffs and trade barriers between Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. His other accomplishments included welfare reform and a successful U.S.-led NATO intervention in the Balkans. Proposals such as universal health care, however, failed. Clinton's denial of his sexual relationship with a White House intern while under oath led to his impeachment but he was not convicted in the Senate trial. Despite the scandal, Clinton was successful in making the Democratic Party more centrist and better equipped to compete with Republicans. Chuck Close begins all of his paintings with a photograph of his subject. In this case, an image made during a photo session in August 2005 for a New York magazine cover. He then draws a grid on both the canvas and the photograph and uses the information contained in the photograph to create a series of abstract modules on the canvas. The National Portrait Gallery acknowledges that, in 2017, several women accused Chuck Close of sexual harassment, though no charges were brought against him. The museum recognizes the positive and negative impacts that individuals represented in our collections have had on history. Chuck Close, born 1940. Oil on Canvas, 2006. Lent by Ian and Annette Cumming. L slash NPG dot five dot two zero zero nine.